0: The dark days are done And the bright days are here My sunny one shines so sincere Sunny one so true I love you
1: Thank you, Doc.
2: Our next guest is one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. He's a writer-performer on the new Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there. He's a writer-performer on the new Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in los angeles he's won a half a dozen emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows let's welcome mr john barber right over there
0: this is john on in las vegas and it's labor day holiday i hope you're having an absolutely fabulously wonderful day that of course with sarita singing sunny francis sinatra saying here's johnny the night he hosted the tonight show And a special thanks to David Lipsby for designing that great film opening for me. And again, another thanks to our director and co-creator and co-founder of BBS Radio, Don Newsom, who is in California. Don, how are you today?
1: I'm doing just fine. Yes. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Always a pleasure to be with you, John. Thank you for that introduction.
0: well, there you go, laboring on Labor Day. How was your weekend?
1: Well, to be quite honest, it was rather peaceful. I had a really wonderful weekend with the family and my 14-age kids. And uh, it's always eventful with 14-age kids. So it's never boring, lots of love, very eventful. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate that.
0: Well, I'm glad because I know it's been forever since you had a vacation. I spent my weekend watching a new miniseries.
1: Well, what miniseries?
0: The John McCain Funeral. <laughs> <laughs> after after a while, I gave, in, I gave up on it because I couldn't stand to listen to Amazing Grace one more time. So I tuned in <laughs> to see what was going on with Aretha's funeral. And there was a girl there, fortunately not singing Amazing Grace again, quite an attractive girl. But I couldn't watch or listen to her because I was distracted by Bill Clinton, who was sitting on the left-hand side of the stage, staring at her backside. Do you remember that great Roy Orbison rendition of Can't Take My Eyes Off Of You? Great song, do you remember that?
1: I actually do, that was a fabulous rendition, no doubt. Yes, I do.
0: Well, somebody should rewrite that with special lyrics for Bill Clinton. And the lyrics should be, can't take my eyes off your ass. (laughs) So anyway, I decided, you know, that that they say when the famous die they had, they go in threes. And that's true. The last couple of weeks, of course, it was John McCain. And then there was Aretha. But the biggest loss for me was an old dear friend of mine, Neil Simon. Now we have Aretha's music, which is absolutely wonderful. But to me, even more important than music, the sound of music is the sound of laughter. And for decades, that's what Neil Simon gave us. I mean, John McCain singing Bomb, Bomb, Bomb in Barack wasn't very funny. And we never got a laugh over John McCain until the news this weekend kept telling us and reminding us that he was an American hero. So what it is that I did over the weekend with the help of David Lisby again in Thailand is we put together... A memorial, a short memorial, to Neil Simon, which we will play at the halfway point in the show. But right now, I want to talk to one of the most interesting people we have ever had on the show. He got the largest response we've ever had of any guest on the show, and we've had a lot of the very famous and the very successful. He is by far one of America's most original, interesting prolific, wide-ranging authors with 11 books on the bestseller list, beginning with a book that took him forever to get published called The Confessions of an Economic Hitman. One of the most important books in America since the murder of John Kennedy, and in reading that book, you may get some insights into why they mur- murdered President Kennedy. But the one thing that interests this man much more than economics is people, real people, indigenous people. And ever since he was on the first time, I've wanted to talk to him about an amazing book he has called The World Is As You Dream It. And you know, we all dream of a better world and there's no better person on the planet to talk to about this than my guest right now, John Perkins. John, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it on this
2: holiday. How are you? I'm great, John, and I'm very happy to be here with you. Thank you so much for including me on this Labor Day. Well, I, I as I said in the introduction, I've wanted
0: to talk to you about that a long time because to me, it is just amazing that you wrote this book about the economic facts of life and how the world works and how the world is run. And at the same time, you have this And that's all like in the present or in the future, but you have this unbelievable interest in indigenous peoples, especially in South America. When did that start
2: for you, and how and why did it start? Well, it started in 1968 when I was trying to avoid the Vietnam draft um, and joined joined the Peace Corps. Uh, And the Peace Corps sent me deep into the Amazon rainforest. Uh, to live with people who, at the time, were famous for shrinking the heads of their enemies, the schwa. Uh, and that was considered to be a pretty gruesome thing, but what I discovered is a very sacred ceremony. And these people were extremely well-connected with nature. Peace Corps sent me in to help them form credit and savings co-ops, which is absurd because they had no currency whatsoever. Uh, they were they were listed as the most, one of the most impoverished people on the planet, because they had no, they had no currency. They had no money. But when I got there, I discovered these were pretty prosperous people. They had really good lives. They lived a nice, you know, they lived. They had plenty of food. They had plenty of water. They they they, they lived good lives, and they had no need of credit and savings co-ops. They couldn't use them. I very quickly learned that I had a great deal to learn from them, although nothing to teach them. And how it was primarily about the important. Go ahead.
0: Excuse me. How old were you at the time? Were you not frightened by them because of that custom? And how on earth did you converse with them? Because obviously, you didn't know the language.
2: Yeah, when I first got there, the Peace Corps had sent me eight weeks of training to learn Spanish, and then they sent me to people who don't speak Spanish to do something that they couldn't possibly do. So my first with the US government were with uh, insanity, you know? And, but there was one guy in the community who spoke Spanish, the school teacher. So at the beginning I I did everything through him and over time I learned to communicate with more people and more and more of the young people at that time were learning Spanish and yes, I was terrified. And I have to say that I hated the first six months that experience, I absolutely hated it. I got very sick, I was dying, I lost a tremendous amount of weight in a short period of time. And one of their shamans he me by teaching me to change my perception. So it was an incredibly important teaching. And then he, he, did, he demanded payment to become a test. Now, I have to tell you, John, back in 1968, 69, I graduated from business school. There was no future in shamanism. <laughs> there is now, but um, I had no desire to be his apprentice. But I had, I felt I had no choice. He'd saved my life. And uh, as it turned out, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. It changed my life. And I became accepted by the community. I became a member of the community. I spent the next couple of years living with them. And I go back all the time now. I was just there uh, about two weeks ago uh, with them once again. I take groups there. I'm a founder, co founder of the nonprofit Pachamama Alliance and also Dream Change. and, And we take groups to learn from these people. They have a great deal to teach us. I want to talk to you about the groups, but first I want to go
0: back to the business of where you said that it was a very important ritual. In what way was the shrinking of a human head an important
2: ritual? Well, that wasn't an important one necessarily, but for them, their belief system is that every human being has three souls, three souls, and one of those is a vengeful soul. And these are warrior people. They, They fought for... Thousands of years, they'd fought their neighbors over territorial things, etc. So they, when a warrior kills someone, he must shrink that person's head in order to shrink the, the vengeful spirit into the head. If you've ever seen a shrunken head or a picture of one, that the nostrils are all closed up with, with thread, the eyes, all the orifices are closed and that's to keep the spirit inside. Uh, and then after the head has shrunk, they, the, the warrior who killed the man spends a year ceremony welcoming that the spirit of that person into his own community and in that process he recovers from you know what we think of as post traumatic stress syndrome When we know that when warriors kill people soldiers kill people they're often haunted by those they kill well this is the way that the many indigenous people have dealt with it by doing things like this and this particular for the schwas ahead as a way to put that soul at rest and also to put the, the man's soul at rest who who killed the, his enemy. You 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 said that the
0: shaman changed your saved your life and changed your perspective. Now you come from a very rigid culture, I would imagine, which is the culture that we are raised in in this country. Why on earth were you receptive to that?
2: And what indeed are shaman? Great questions. <laughs> and yes. I come. I'm, I come from over 300 years of Yankee wilderness in New Hampshire, Vermont, Connecticut. I'm in New Hampshire right now at a home my grandfather built here 100 years ago. But my family goes way back, and, and very rigid. And so when I'm in the Amazon and getting very, very sick, uh, and there's no way I can leave because it's a two-day walk through. The- dense jungle and another two days in a rickety old bus, if I can find one, up to the nearest medical facility. So I'm resigned to dying. And the shaman comes up with the help of the school teacher, the translator, and basically says, um, I can heal you tonight. And I was skeptical. I mean, this guy was a short little, you know, schwar guy wearing a loincloth and feathers and tattoos. And he looked pretty scary to me, but I didn't really have much choice. So the next thing I know, I'm sitting in front of him on a stool, and he's, he's got this cup in front of him, and he's blowing into it and chanting into it, hands it to him. He says, drink that to the interpreter. And I do, and it's very foul. And I start vomiting. I've only been vomiting a lot, but this time I'm vomiting serpents and monsters and dragons and worms oh, and all those things. And I'm seeing them. And what I you know, what I what I now know is I, I was taking something that's become quite popular in the United States and elsewhere called ayahuasca. But oh, at the time gosh, what at is the time? What it I, yeah. What what at is time, ayahuasca? Well, it's a it's a plant that's become it's become kind of chic in the United States. I, I'm a little concerned where some people are using it, but it's what we call, call it's, a, it's a, in the United States as a hallucinogenic, uh, like LSD, but it's a plant. My goodness, now to the now to the question. And Joe,
0: after I ask this question, I know you're a huge fan of Johnson, and have read all his, all his stuff or most of his stuff. I want you to join in, but th- this is the question. You said that you take groups of people into this area of South America. When did you start doing that was this your idea long ago, or did people start to read your material and say, Hey, Mr. Perkins, next time you go, can I take along? And how much would it cost?
2: Yeah. Well, yeah. And let me just complete the story of the ayahuasca. What happened when I was on that journey? So that night, what I saw was that uh, I, I grew up very hygienic. New England culture, we washed our hands a lot and we ate very bland foods. And suddenly I'm living with people who have never seen a bar of soap and they eat some very strange foods. <laughs> very strange to uh, me. Squirming white grubs and they, you know, anyway, I won't go into it. But so on that that journey, that shamanic journey that night, what I saw was that I, um, every time I ate these foods or drank the kind of beer that they make out of Manioc, by the women chewing and spitting Manioc, <laughs> uh, every time I drank this stuff, which I had to do a lot of because it wasn't anything else, I'd hear a voice, like my mother saying, son, it'll kill you. <laughs> but I also saw that the straw were very, very healthy people. meta Tarzan, you know? And the women, I was in my early 20s, so the women were looking really good. So that <laughs> night, I came to realize that it wasn't the food or the drink that was killing me, it was my perception, my mindset. Oh, wow. And after that, as I went through shamanic training for a year with the shaman, and later I, I studied with shamans in Indonesia and Iran and Egypt and many other places in Latin America, I discovered that shamanism is all about changing perceptions. And in fact, it's always worst of modern psychology, therapy. And, you know, what we're in now is a situation where we're realizing that we're in trouble on this planet. The human beings aren't doing a very good job of taking care of the planet with climate change and all these things. And it, but it's all about perception. We need to change our perception of what it means to be human on this planet. So the shamanic teachings were very, very you know, important to me. And, and, and the next day incident, I was totally healthy and, and stayed in Ecuador living with indigenous people for the next three years, go back all, all the time now, and, uh, and you know, always remain healthy. And in answer to the other question, uh, at, at some point after I was an economic hitman, after, after I got out of the Peace Corps, I did what I had been trained to do as an economist in business school and became an economic hitman for 10 years. It's been Over that time, my conscience got to me and I quit. I went back to our people and said, I want to help you save your rainforest. You saved my life. You changed my life. Now I want to help you save your rainforest. And they said, well, that's great. But if you want to do that, the way to do it is to change the dream of your people. The world is as you dream it. And it's the dream of your people that are destroying this rainforest. It's your oil companies. It's your lumber companies. It's your gold mining companies. It's your cattle ranches. So change the dream of your people. And if you have some people who want to learn how to help change the dream of your people, bring them here to learn from us. And that's when I started taking groups in. This was back in the 80s, and I've been doing it ever since. How many so people... I do a lot of trip, four trips, four trips a year. How many people do you
0: take, and how much does it cost? And Joe, I want you to join in on this, please.
2: Go ahead, John. Well, most of our trips are limited to 15 people. And the cost range usually around $3,000. But people go to my website, jones.org, and, and see all the trips. They do the Kogi of Colombia, the Maya of Guatemala, the indigenous people of the Amazon, the Chuan, the Atchua, uh, and some uh, other shamans in Costa Rica. So it's all on my website, so without going into a lot of detail, the trips are usually about 15 people, and uh, the cost are in the neighborhood of $3,000, which is actually very reasonable. With some of these groups,
0: what is... it? Was there a person who was perhaps more rigid than you in their beliefs uh, that you brought to these people whose life was dramatically changed by meeting
2: them? John, I couldn't begin to tell you the number of people. Well, I've taken well over a thousand people on these trips, probably close to 2,000, and I can't tell you how many of them have come back to me and told me and showed me how their lives have changed. And some of them were very rude to start with. I've taken uh, big-time corporate CEOs, I've taken medical doctors, I've taken psychologists and and, uh, physicists, and you know just and, and people plumbers and and carpenters and massage therapists and all people from all walks of life and i think i think it's fair to say that everybody that goes on one of these trips has a life-changing experience in one way or another know and, and, and as far as i know it it always turns out to be positive sometimes it re- results in things that might not seem positive like people quit their job but it's because <laughs> they've seen, <laughs> they really shouldn't have that job and they see that on the trip. and so it's uh, it's like in, a, uh, in, in a, days, a, a week, 10 days, two weeks, whatever, in terms of different durations, you get like 40 years of psychotherapy wrapped into that short period of time. It's very powerful. The shamanism stuff and, and the experiences people go through is is very powerful. Do you think, and uh, Joe, please join in on this.
3: Uh, oh, do you're, you- you're doing great. I mean, I was going to ask John about his concerns about the use of ayahuasca and whether he thinks it's becoming a chic form of consumerism, and the actual point of ayahuasca is being lost?
2: Good question. Yes, that's a great question, and I think there's two things here. I think there's a consciousness revolution going on around the world. I I just came back from the Czech Republic. From there I went to the Amazon. I I give speeches on economics on one hand and shamanism on the other in many different places all over the world. And everywhere I go, I was recently in St. Petersburg, Russia, with, with the conference President Putin was at, all kinds of different, there's a huge variety. I'm very, very blessed to have those opportunities. And I feel that there's there truly is an awakening around the world of the fact that we live on a very fragile space station that has no shuttles. And we're the, we're the navigators, you know, we're the dominant species, and we're navigating ourselves towards a disaster. And people are waking up to that. At the same time, the status quo is pushing back. You know, those who think they're really capping well off, that have a lot of money, you know, that c- control things, they're pushing back the change. I think there's a this consciousness waking awakening. The plant world is taking it's playing a role in that, and I, that's I think one of the reasons ayahuasca has come into the public consciousness. When I was a Peace Corps volunteer in 1968, I didn't know anybody that ever heard of it. I never heard of it. Um, but I also am concerned that, I, that they're, I run into people that say, hey, the last year I've taken ayahuasca 50 times. How many times have you taken it? <laughs> <laughs> <How laughs> the last yeah. time I took it was 10 years ago. And I'm still dealing with what I learned 10 years ago. I don't need to take it again. And that's the way the indigenous people are. This, so a a beautiful beautiful I think it's a beautiful plant. I think it's a lot of <laughs> things. But I, and I also do am concerned that it's become this This chic thing for people to do over and over and over again at parties.
0: So when you have these conversations, when you have these deep conversations with these people, it astounds me. You talk about this, and I guess quinine and other things come from these plants and these herbs and these flowers. How did they discover it? I mean, was it a thousand years ago or five hundred? Do they eat and try everything that
2: grows in the jungle? Yeah, no. They so some of it comes down, gets passed down from you know parent to, to child to child and so on. But also, I've been with some of these shamans when they come to the states and they don't have the same plants. And what they do, and what they do also in the jungle constantly. So they, they're constantly exploring. They have a type of tobacco that's called Nicotiana rustica, which is very different and very much more powerful than the tobacco that our company is making, combined with chemicals, which is Nicotiana tobacco. Nicotiana rustica has many of the same qualities as the ayahuasca; it's milder, the same qualities. They take that as a snuff of the nose, and then and through that they journey into the plant world. They go and they sit in front of plants, and the plants tell them what they can do. Now, this sounds pretty bizarre to you know us in the United States to think of plants telling them, but we are learning more, more about the ability to communicate, even the botanists are understanding about how plants pass chemicals through their root systems and communicate with each other. The shamans, uh, uses this tobacco to help them journey into the plants to learn more about them. So there's two routes: one is you pass all this knowledge on, but they're also constantly experimenting. And you know, many, many I've seen I've seen estimates that as high as 70 percent of the pharmaceuticals we use in the United States and Europe today came from the, the plant world. A lot of them from the Amazon. That's now so they're, synthesized. Yeah, they're
0: synthesized. So yeah, you, you said you brought you brought CEOs and lawyers and psychiatrists psychiatrists need to go more than anybody, I'm sure, to, the, to South America. And then you said you brought some of the shamans to the United States. For the shamans coming to the United States, it must have been almost soul-destroying. I don't know how else to say it, but it had to be absolutely
2: total culture shock for them. You know, that's interesting, John. Uh, I'll, I'll answer that by a little story. The first time we brought a couple of shamans out of the Amazon to San Francisco, I'm a co founder of the Pachamama Lance, a nonprofit that works with them. We had a meeting up in the top of the Penthouse in San Francisco of corporate donors to the nonprofit. There were these two shamans. I was translating for them. And and we could look out. We could see the Golden Gate Bridge and the the Bay Bridge. It was an amazing, spectacular view from the top of this building. And one of the people asked the shamans, "They said you must feel really homesick here. What's it like? Your first time out of the jungle and look at where you are." And these men answered, "This is Mother Earth. This is home. We feel at home here. This Uh is Mother Earth." They're very, very, very dry. And they say do I miss we miss our families? Yes, but you're our family too. We're all we're all families. They have this very holistic view of the stars, everything they, is, is part of a they sound almost like
0: American Indians when they talk about the wheel of life and the circle of life and how the foods are somehow interrelated in that circle of life. You know, I would think, John. That when you are hired, you obviously have a speaker's agent because you're in demand. I would imagine more people would be a whole lot more interested in hearing you talk about this
2: than economics. Is that so? I, I, John, you yeah. broke up on that. Could you just repeat the question? Yeah, I would just say. You, you think you would be interested in what? more people would be interested
0: in what you're talking about now, these indigenous people and the shamans and how the dream of the world is changing. Uh, that They'd be more interested in that than hearing about economics. But, you know, America is rooted deeply, deeply, deeply in the profit economic system, uh, capitalism, capitalism. Well, it's at its worst now because it's unchecked and unfettered, but maybe at one time when there was free enterprise, it, it was not so. But do you think, have you observed perhaps maybe that dream changing in our culture, in our society? The shaman telling you that it's necessary for us, most powerful country in the world, to change that dream. Do you see it changing
2: I, I do. I, I'm very, very, very hopeful. It's, it's, it's happening. And as I said before, there's a setback. The people that run the big, you know, the big corporations, the very wealthy, and this is in, indicative, in, indicated by current political situation where nobody can seem to agree on anything. but everybody's trying to stop change. Who sitting in high positions at the same time? There's this huge undercurrent. I think the fact we had. A Bernie Sanders running, and we had a Trump running, and on two extreme ends of the spectrum, really, uh, shows is this huge deep dissatisfaction. And some people were looking for an authoritarian figure, Trump, and others are looking for a socialistic figure, Sanders. And then there was the middle road, which was which was Hillary. I think, but I think the, the underlying thing is a huge dissatisfaction. There's a need to change that dream. And we, and I talk to a lot of corporate uh, conferences, big corporation people, and I don't, I can't, I don't talk about shamanism per se, but I see the same thing as being perception change. So I think that we have had a perception uh, since I got. That the business of business is to maximize profits, short term profits, regardless of the social and environmental costs. That's been taken us in a terrible situation, but it's just a perception, just like my perception that the foods in the Amazon were killing us. If we can, and that's taken as to what I call a death economy that's based on ravaging resources, destroying the very resources upon which it depends. If we change our perception and say, no, the, the business of business, the business of business and government is to create long-term benefits for everyone, for our children, our grandchildren, and for the, for the earth itself, if we just can adopt this new perception and, and make the businesses that do that be the really successful ones, we can pay investors good rates of return, but let's have them invest in what I call a life economy, which are systems that clean up pollution, that regenerate destroyed environments, that recycle, that create new technologies. The solar and wind industries are a really good example, but there's so much more we can do in that area. We have an opportunity now to really move in a huge, beautiful new direction. And I think shamanism guides us in that way. It says all we have to do is change our perception of what it means to be successful. It isn't about being accumulating more materialistic things that, that destroy the earth. It's about growing in ways that Help the to clean up destroyed environments, and that help to feed starving people around the world, and, and create a better situation for my. When
0: when are you taking your next trip? Uh, are these things very
2: frequent, or are there maybe five or ten a year? Typically, I do I do one to the Kogi of Colombia in December. I got one coming up this December. And then to the Maya of the Mayan people of uh, Guatemala in January, and also to some shamans in Costa Rica in January. And then the Pachamama Alliance trip is in August. Just every year we pretty much have a very similar schedule, but dates change somewhat. But yeah, I'd love to have some of your listeners join join me. So these these trips are beautiful and they're they're fun and they're very, very enlightening if you will. How can people get a hold of you if they wish to join you?
0: And have you taken your family? Have I taken what? Have you taken your family on one of these trips?
2: Yeah. My, my, actually, my daughter started going on these which which started going to be the Mayan people when she was eight months old. And she went on the founding trip for the Pachamama Labs when she was 12. Yeah, and you know, my best friends all go on these trips, um, and people can get a hold of me. Go to my website, johnperkins.org, is the is the best way to find out. Everything, the, the information about the, the trips is there, and I hope you guys will come. Oh, listen, I would love to, I would absolutely and totally love to be
0: something like that. I'd be a little bit frightened like you.
3: you well, know. I'm going to have to fit it into my regimen of ayahuasca. Well,
2: on the Mayan trip to oh, which is in January, that's that's uh, that's a great trip. It's a it's a deep, deep, profound trip, and yet it's physically quite easy. Um, and when we don't do ayahuasca on that trip, we do, we do do this this tobacco that to me is just as powerful. It's a little, it's milder, but you do it over a few more days, and it's I'll tell you something.
0: someone who would absolutely love to do that is my son. He is one of the brightest feet. I've only met three geniuses in my life. Uh, Buckminster Fuller, Jim Garrison, and my son. And he's uh, one of the co-executive producers of a show called Criminal Minds. And I'm telling you, he would absolutely love to go on one of these trips with his wife, especially with his wife, who is uh, is also... She treats... Uh, She treats people who are addicted to prescription drugs in Hollywood, and she's never going to run out of clients. John, I want to thank you so, so much for coming here. I want you to come back often. And again, where can people go to find you and make arrangements to go on these trips with you?
2: johnperkins.org www.johnperkins.org www.johnperkins.org uh, and uh, i got a you know i'm on facebook and twitter but the best place to start is the website there's a little box where people can sign up for my monthly newsletter it's short comes out once a month there's one coming out next week about plants and i know what we've just been talking about You have to to put your email address in the little box. I really encourage people to do that. And I hope to see your son and you and his wife and Joe. That would be fantastic. I I know that you went to a lot
0: of trouble to be here today. And I deeply, deeply appreciate it. Right now, I'm going to say goodbye and good luck to you. Joe's going to stick around because Don, are you still there? Don?
1: I am here, yes, and it's a would you would you,
0: do, would you do me a favor now? I don't want to do the usual intermission. I want you to play the little tribute that David and I put together for my long ago friend, uh,
1: Neil Simon.
0: Could you play that I for would me? I'd
1: love to, absolutely, sir, and we're going to play it right now. Enjoy. Here we go, the intermission video. Thank
0: you so much. Hi. Sadly, there's a whole lot less laughter in the world today now that Neil Simon has died, the author of The Sunshine Boys and The Odd Couple. I first met Neil in 1972. I'd just done a piece on the air about what it must be like to be a Jew today in this world following the massacre of those Israeli athletes. And when I get off the air on the phone is Neil. He tells me that he's getting the Heart of Israel Award at the Beverly Hills Hotel, and asked me if I would come and emcee the event, and I agreed to do it. So for a couple of years, we're casual friends. We talk on the phone, or we chat when we see each other at a play or at a movie. But we got to be really close friends right after I attacked him publicly, in one of my reviews, and the review was of his movie version of The Sunshine Boys. He's not as good as the book. In this case, I told Neil, the movie wasn't even as good as the play. Now, the play is about two Jewish comics who loathe each other and don't speak for 30 years and finally want to get together. And on Broadway, they were performed by two great Jewish actors, Jack Albertson and Sam Levine. But when it came time for Neil to make the movie, now get this, Neil Simon... Is the wealthiest playwright in history. I mean, even if Shakespeare got residuals, Neil still has more money in the bank, so he could have done anything he wished with this movie. But instead, he tried to Presbyterianize it for Americans to consume, so they stuck in Walter Matthau and George Burns. So I told him the next thing he has to write is a letter firing himself as his own casting director. And then I said to him that this was going to be one of my last reviews because after 10 years at Los Angeles Magazine and KNBC with Tom Sider, I'd haven't had enough. Well, he called me back immediately. He said, hold it, John, you can't do that. Who is going to tell the emperors in this town that they're wearing no clothes? And so I said to him, Neil, I have just run out of creative, imaginative ways to say it's a piece of crap. So he said, okay, I'm with you on that, but I understand you're doing a comedy album. And I said, that's right. It's based on my reviews, and it's called I Met a Man I Didn't Like. So he said, can I write some of the liner notes for you? I said, are you kidding? The greatest playwright in history? Absolutely, you can. So Neil got together, and he got together with Burt Reynolds. He got together with Joan Rivers. And Paul Williams to write the liner notes on this album. It's called "I Met a Man I Didn't Like." And then six months later, he called me back up and he said, "John, you want to know something? That is by far the least successful writing I have ever done." Anyway, what I wanted to tell you is his his favorite story about his mother and about Marcia Mason. Now Neil's first wife was a dancer, he'd been married to her for about 20 years and she died suddenly of an unbelievable, surprising illness. And he went into emotional distress for two or three years and never came out of that horrible closet until he met Marcia Mason, who was starring with Richard Dreyfus in The Goodbye Girl. And he decided he wanted to marry her, so he called his mother and said, Mom, I want you to meet the girl I'm going to marry, an actress, her name is Marcia." Marsha Mason, well, the mother being totally Jewish, said, okay, son, you bring her here, I'll cook, I'll tell you about it. Well, Neil had often told his mother, listen, I want to buy you a real nice place you can retire in Florida or, you know, upper New York, anything you want, I'll buy it for you. And the mother always declined. She wanted to live in this little tiny apartment where they had been raised. So that's where he took Marsha for dinner. The mother cooked the dinner, they're eating the dinner, and during the dinner, Marcia has to go to the restroom. So she excuses herself, goes to the restroom. Now, the place is so small, and the restroom is so close to this tiny dining room and the kitchen that Marcia is embarrassed, Neil said, if they could hear her going to the bathroom. So, what she does is she turns on the faucet in the bathroom. And goes to the toilet. So afterwards, she comes out. They finish the dinner. Neil and Marcia kiss the mother goodbye. And he goes back to his apartment in New York and calls his mother and says, Mom, what did you think? And the mother says, son, I'll tell you, she's a pretty nice girl, but she pisses like a horse. (laughs) See you next week. John, are we back? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh.
3: Oh, that is so funny. It yes, is.
1: I just... And
0: you know, all, all, of, all of his uh, plays, Joe, believe it or not, every one of them is based on all the people he knew from the very first one, Barefoot in the Park, which is how he met his uh, wife, who walked the dog barefoot. Uh, in Central uh, uh, Park. So his sense of humor was, it was, it was like Sholem Alekhem. It was just so natural. It just, and a lot like M- Mark Twain. Anyway, uh, it was a delight having. But well,
3: he also it, followed the adage, write what you know. Exactly. Which right. Is key. And mm-hmm. to go from Marsha Mason, by the way, let me put a plug in for <laughs> Elaine Joyce. Oh, yes. His final wife, who was a brilliant. Comedic actress in her own right, who took the. She was beautiful, by the way, but she played that sort of blonde ditzy thing to a T. At a time when you would, could inherit, a, inhabit a character and really make a career out of it, and she just had such great comedic timing. I can only imagine what it was like to have dinners with them.
0: Uh, it must have been wonderful, and she reminded me a lot of Judy Holiday. I mean, right, played that character so magnificently, and I sort of wish John could have stuck around but I know he doesn't want to talk about economics anymore and in your wonderful news vandal today you have a half a dozen stories about economics and you know what I, he mentioned quite honestly that there was a great disparity between Bernie Sanders on the one hand talking about socialism and then you have Donald Trump the successful capitalist on the other hand and I didn't want to tell him to me, the most heartbreaking thing in politics in the last 30 or 40 years was Bernie Sanders becoming the Democrats' Ron Paul and not running as a third-party candidate. I didn't have the heart to tell him, but that's why I think, you know, I, I'm i not quite sure that I believe the dreams and the perceptions of America about controlling the world are going to change? Your thoughts?
3: Well, it's interesting that you bring it back around to that because we just finished this week-long Stations of the Cross version of a official funeral for John McCain. And there are many, many critiques of John McCain. There's been a lot of celebration, but of course I see all the critiques on the libertarian uh, uh, right and on the um, progressive left. And people really imbuing in John McCain a lot of the uh, responsibility and the blame for the Iraq War, for America's warmongering, for its uh, empire. And there's no doubt that John McCain never met a conflict or an intervention he didn't like. But one thing struck me about that, which is these authors who, were, who rushed to blame John McCain, and particularly for Iraq, I thought, well, one thing, he wasn't actually president. But let's put that aside because the the crucial element behind the support, behind the war for Iraq was the support of the American people. And in retrospect, I think we absolved the American people for their willing participation in the wanton destruction of a bystander nation under false pretenses that would be Iraq. We forget three out of four Americans wanted to go to war with Iraq Almost 70 percent of them believe that Saddam was responsible for 9/11. And yes, sorry.
0: You, excuse me, but don't you think that's because of the president, President of the United States, and Condoleezza Rice, and and Powell all said there are weapons of mass destruction.
3: At and the same, but at the, but John, at the same time, Knight Ritter in particular was blowing apart those narratives. They were blowing apart the aluminum tubes. They were blowing apart the yellow cake. There were millions of people marched against the Iraq war. That's true. If you wanted to know, you could know. I think that one of the issues that we don't deal with in America is that our empire and our American exceptionalism is actually something that the American people willingly participate in. Why do we have the military at NFL games? Is it because the NFL is, the military is being imposed on people? Or is it because people like to say, oh yeah, there goes that overflight. Yeah, look at those fighter jets going over. We endorse it and I think on some levels we like to find these sacrificial lambs that we put on the altar, and we say, "See, John McCain was a war monger, and he's the reason why America's empire is the way it is." When really, if we think about it, particularly in terms of socialism, the, the greatest, the biggest socialism program on the planet is the U.S. military. It provides millions of jobs to many people. For people who, for young people who don't have an access, don't have access to a college education, it's their only way out of their dead end. Uh, lives uh, in their hometowns, and it, it provides health care, it provides job training, it provides money for college, lifetime benefits in terms of home buying, lifetime benefits in, per, in terms of health care, and we're okay with that because it's part of the, the military state that we've established in the United States, one that we all embrace, I think, more willingly than we're willing to admit. Well, you, you said... If you want to know, you can get
0: to know. You said that Knight Rider tore it apart.
3: Knight Ritter, because I don't know about Knight Rider, because David nassau wasn't involved. But. They, they tore it apart.
0: That's because you read everything, so you knew it. But that news never got on the mainstream news. And I remember when one of the generals uh, from uh, the Pentagon was put on Oprah Winfrey's show. And it's before the invasion. It's the moment I stopped watching Oprah Winfrey. A young woman got up about 34 years of age saying she she had a couple of young children. She was very worried about the fact that her, her sons may grow up and may have to go to a future war. And she just had the feeling that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. She didn't even get a chance to finish. Oprah ordered her to sit down and she sat down. Oprah Winfrey could have single-handedly stopped the war. Instead, she propagandized it like anybody else. And look at Phil Donahue. Yeah. Phil Donahue has the most popular show on MSNBC and just wants to talk to somebody to prove that there are no weapons of mass destruction. and he's fired the next day. And the person who fires him said he didn't wave the flag enough. There is something
3: totally wrong with that. Most- and, John, and, and John, that's a great point, and, and it's part of a, a conundrum that I have tried to deal with the entire time I've been in, in the media, Start, and starting back after I left the Center for Defense Information and went over to um, uh, the News Hour, And that's the chicken-egg argument. Is it that the media is giving the people what it wants to give them, or is it that the media is giving the people what they want? And at the beginning, I was on the other side of the chicken and the egg argument, that really the media is, is responsible for what the people believe. Over time though, it has occurred to me that, the, that really the, pe- the media is giving the people a lot of what they want and expect. You know this as well as I do. If you put something on and people don't like it and it doesn't make money, it's not gonna be on. And I think a lot of what we see in the media is a corporate ethos of trying to do those things which draw the largest number of people to the audience, to be there in the audience, and alienates the fewest number of people. And in the aftermath of 9-11, I've become more convinced in retrospect that the media was afraid of looking unpatriotic to the extent to which they were pushing out all voices that could be deemed unpatriotic because it was feeding this bloodlust narrative that the American people had. They wanted somebody to pay for 9-11. They wanted somebody to pay, and Iraq ended up becoming the sacrificial lamb for that anger that they felt, and quite justifiable anger based on the images of 9-11. But I really think that when we think about the media now, it's important to look at the responsibility of the audiences as well as the responsibility of the people but, who uh, by the 9/11, it's,
0: 9/11 itself may have been total misinformation for us.
3: <laughs> well, I, I, I look particularly when we look at the involvement of the Saudis and how that has been whitewashed. You are not going to get an argument out of me. But I mean, it was
0: like it was like a replay of Mark Lane's book, Rush to Judgment. They literally shut down any investigation of 9/11. I think the turning point for most Americans, because you mentioned earlier, there were literally millions of people who marched against the impending war in Iraq, but they saw it did no good. And you know, it takes a lot for somebody to put down their cell phone and turn off their television set and get out on the street and march. It doesn't happen anymore. And I don't think it will ever happen anymore in America. I think people don't care anymore. It is so tough now. The suicide rate is climbing dramatically in this country, not just among soldiers, but amongst people people in the middle class. America is on... I think that John Perkins is right. There needs to be a dream change for the purpose of America. Were you talking to me, Don? I'm sorry.
1: Oh, this is so powerful. I mean... This is one of the most powerful programs I've heard because I thought I was spiritual, but after listening to J.P. Sattile and John Perkins, I realize I've got such a long way to go. I mean, no, no I do. Uh, I'm, I'm there, shocked nothing by it. A I'm, 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 I'm shocked by it because all of you are absolutely right there, and John Perkins made that so clear in this interview. It's I rarely get shocked. By any interview anymore after the, let's say, 80,000 shows I've helped to uh, produce. That was a shocker. I mean, I I think you're right. He needs to go on a bender and be talking about the, nec- the next dream and what we can all do to create that new vision, that new perception which becomes a part of our new attitude. I love it. You, I mean, wow. And JP, <laughs> it's always such a pleasure to have you on the program. And John, I idolize you. I do. We've got about two minutes left to go before we got to close down. We're right at it. we're right at The hour.
0: Okay. Uh, thank you so much, John. Uh, okay. John, no,
3: I think you're right about the the dream, and I think one of the things we are finding is that once we achieve the level of comfort, economic comfort, the continuation of consumption to try and fill a hole in our souls just leads to a bigger and bigger hole i think that's what john perkins is talking about is trying to close that hole and find a way of healing it and find a new dream other than the american dream which seems to be bankrupt
0: well you know i have never ever ever done anything in my life for money and the reason for that is when i i left uh, candidate to look for my father who had gone away to the the Second World War, the peace and quiet of World War II. And when I tracked him down and it didn't work out, and I ended up as as an actor in a repertory company in England, and I could have become a star in in England, and I gave it up because acting was make-believe, you know? And I thought, you know, I don't want to be in a make-believe world. My life is so tough. I want to celebrate my life. So what it is I look for, I look for something that I would love to do. And this is an extension of what I love to do. Sometimes I made a great deal of money at it. Sometimes I had to spend a great deal of money at it, but I don't know anybody who's been luckier or happier than I have been. And one one of the things that keeps me going is the joy of doing this and the joy of talking to people like you And, of course, people like John Perkins. It doesn't get more interesting and more fun than that. Anyway, Joe, where do they see you next, and where can they get your news vandal?
3: I'll be on Ocelli tomorrow for a full hour, and just go to uh, newsvandal.com. It's spelled like it sounds, newsvandal.com. Get the rundown. And tune in in two weeks, because the great John Barber's got another great guest. And, John, it it has truly been an honor to become your... Um, sidekick.
0: I couldn't. I couldn't do it without you because I wouldn't know anything. Anyway, thank you all so much for watching and listening. You can go to my site, YouTube, JohnBarber'sWorld.com, and you can find this show and a lot of other interesting things. And so, we'll see you soon in two weeks. So good night and good luck
1: are
2: done, and the bright days are here,
0: my sunny one shines so sincere, sunny one so true,
3: I love you.